and welcome to Thank the Maker, a podcast about heroes, princesses, scoundrels, hokey religions, ancient weapons, and all things Star Wars. I'm your host, Adam Russell. <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> uh, can we leave that laugh in? I'm your host, Ryan Key. And today's a very special day for us here at Thank the Maker because... Hey, everyone. I'm Nick Ganbarian, and I'm also the host now. Hey. Now. Now you are. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Of course, dude. Everybody, we are bringing in our buddy Nick from the band Bayside to join the crew full time. It's going to be a host here on Think the Maker because uh, we've had a really good time recording with Nick and also his Star Wars IQ is extremely fucking high. So he brings a lot to the table and we're stoked to have you, bud. <laughs> no, it's been fun ever since I've been getting involved. It's just great to have more people to bounce Star Wars fandom and nerdy facts off of. So I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. And it's going to be fun. More nerds to nerd with. <laughs> I'm stoked because we've gotten to tour a few times, and you know how tour is. Like when you're old farts like us, you just want to get on the bus and just yeah. do your own thing. So I'm just stoked to have another bud, man. I'm stoked for us to like <laughs> hang and get to be closer buds and share the love of Star Wars and all that. So stoked, man. Absolutely looking forward to it. It's going to be great. We're going to be a three time zone podcast. Cool. <laughs> oh, that's not cool part. I forgot. <laughs> When you get home, are you going to play that part from Indigo Flow on $3 Bill, y'all, when Fred Durst says, Jacksonville is on the map, or no? No, I like the part better when he goes, take it to the Matthews Bridge. (laughs) Also (laughs) solid. That's like a really old, rusty-ass bridge. There's a lot of bridges in Jacksonville. I'm from Jacksonville, everyone. That's That's where I was born and raised. And uh, it's about to fall down into the river. Cool, cool, cool. You drive over it, and you're like... You know what would be cool is if I make it to the other side of this bridge. That'd be cool. (laughs) Well, today we are going to talk about Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. The first of the prequels released in 1999, telling the origin story of Anakin Skywalker and everything, for that matter, as far as Lucas is concerned. The Phantom Menace tells the story of uh, Jedi Knights Obi-Wan Kenobi and Qui-Gon Jinn. They rescue a chick named Queen Amidala ruler of a peaceful planet invaded by dark forces. During their escape, they discover nine-year-old Anakin Skywalker, a child prodigy who is unusually strong in the Force. A nine-year-old child who looks like he's four. (laughs) He does look like a little baby. Let's acknowledge something right out of the gate. Ryan Key. Pre-crawl. Talk to us. Okay, all right. You said it so well. Okay. We've done this before, and the spirit of keeping this podcast searching for fresh perspectives on the Star Wars universe and trying to keep things positive in a world full of digital negativity. This is later in the show, so you don't have to worry about it right now, but we're going to bail on gripes. There will be no disturbances in the Force because I think it goes without saying that this movie was not very well received. So instead of focusing on that for the entire episode, I think we are going to just try to find the things about it that were cool from like a technological standpoint, you know, memories of our excitement, seeing it for the first time and the things like the visuals and and some of the things in the film that actually were super sweet. And we're going to try to focus on that. And I think the last thing I would say, we're going to put this in the show notes, but on the Star Wars YouTube page, there is a video called The Beginning and it's about an hour and 10 minutes long. And it's a documentary on the making of of this film. And I think the best, all you need to do is watch it. My general feeling is that you're watching this and you're just watching everyone 
from the executive producer, director George Lucas himself, all the way down. They're all just super stressed. The whole documentary, it's just like deadlines that can't be met and technology that doesn't exist yet. And like they're just spending all their time and budget on these technological advancements, which look forwarded, advanced, I guess I should say, like filmmaking for decades to come. And that's fucking amazing. And that's what ILM does time and time again as they make films. I mean, all this technology gets bought and used by other picture houses all around the world. But I think it's very evident. And I and so instead of spending two hours talking about the things that we don't like about the movie, I think it'd be cool to focus on some of those cool technologies that they found and developed and advanced and and go watch that documentary because I think it, it's a it's like a it's like a nice way to sort of analyze what happened with this film and why it ended up not being what it could have been. It sounds good. I feel like the the goal for me when it comes to talking about the prequels, whether it's on a podcast or not, is almost like taking like a cliff's notes version of these like just taking what you need to know about the beginning of the skywalker saga and Pal- palpatine's plan and uh and just moving from there you know like if it's star wars is something i know you care about even though the prequels may, might not be it for you so it's kind of like getting the facts that you need and the story beats that you need to get to episode four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and everything in between. So to me, it's like using the prequels as cliff notes almost to know why it's heavy that Vader is Luke's father. I guess that's the way I look at it. All right, let's hear this opening crawl. Bill Key, hit it. Here we go. Turmoil has engulfed the Galactic Republic. The taxation of trade routes to outlying star systems is in dispute. Hoping to resolve the matter with a blockade of deadly battleships, the Greedy Trade Federation has stopped all shipping to the small planet of Naboo. While the Congress of the Republic endlessly debates this alarming chain of events, the Supreme Chancellor has secretly dispatched two Jedi Knights, the guardians of peace and justice in the galaxy, to settle the conflict. I love hearing that line right there, that throwback. The guardians of peace and justice in the galaxy? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that crawl was coming in 99, and I was like, fuck yeah, dude. (laughs) It's a good crawl. I mean, tax disputes aside. I mean, it sets it up. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about some stolen plans. What have you done with those plans? Episode one, The Phantom Menace, released May 19th, 1999. Not a birthday film for Ryan Key. It's the first one we've covered that has not been. They were all May until... Um, until Disney, right? Yeah, I guess so. Tagline, every generation has a legend. Every journey has a first step. Wasn't there another one as well? Every story has a beginning, something simple like that, right? Uh-huh. Oh, that makes, that tracks seven <laughs> taglines for the seven film. Seven taglines. Let's read them all. Let's do it. It all, it all plays here. Producer Kurt tells us we have seven taglines, actually. The saga begins spring 1999. Force returns May 19th. One truth, one hate. I don't remember that one. Whoa. Every generation has a legend. Every journey has a first step. Every saga has a beginning. That's the full thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm remembering. Good. I mean, that's great shit. See that on a poster. Star Wars boner, lightsaber up. And if you were going to grab it on VHS, you might have been brought in by one race, one adventure, the one to own. Coming to VHS, you know, it was like you'd rent from Blockbuster and there would be like previews before. (laughs) Directed by George Lucas, of course. Written by George Lucas, of course, we all know. Starring Liam Neeson as Qui-Gon Jinn, Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan Kenobi. Natalie Portman as Queen Amidala, Padme Amidala. Jake Lloyd as Anakin Skywalker. Samuel L. Jackson as Mace Windu, the baddest motherfucking Jedi on the council. 
That's a tasty fucking burger. Mmm, <laughs> this is a tasty burger. Ian McDermott as Senator Palpatine, Anthony Daniels back as C-3PO, Frank Oz as the voice of Yoda, Kenny Baker back as R2-D2, Ray Park as Darth Maul, Ahmed Best as Jar Jar Binks, Warwick Davis as one, two, three characters, all on Tatooine. Mostly pod racers. Yeah. Yeah. Kira Knightley, Terrence Stamp as Chancellor Valorum, fucking General Zod in the building, <laughs> and a handful of other actors in some of the uh, other prominent roles. Liam Neeson, to this point, his big ones were Schindler's List. Rob Roy, um, Less Miserables, is that? I think you're saying that right. That's, yeah, that's, right. that's right. Classic. Ewan McGregor, of course, known mostly at this point for Train Spotting, incredible film. That's probably like in my. If you put the Star, the original Star Wars trilogy, as one, if someone's like, "What's your favorite movie?" and you're allowed to put them all three together, I think Train Spotting is in my top three all time favorite films. Oh wow, did not. Know I don't that. even include when people ask me favorite movies. I don't even include Star Wars. It's like not. Yeah, exactly. It's something else. I don't. I don't know <laughs> what it is or like why it is, but Train Spotting just in you know in high school it just came into my life at the right time, and then I go, and you go back to it now, and it's still one hundred percent. There's nothing about it where you're like, oh yeah, this was a '90s movie or there, you know. But Train Spotting is just man, what a film all time. And Danny Boyle and the career he's had after it, like it was just. Such a cool uh, step onto the scene. It's amazing, too, that Ewan McGregor got this role based off of that film. I mean, it's... Yeah. He went, he went from, like, a strung-out heroin addict to Obi-Wan Kenobi. It's pretty incredible. I think I mentioned this in another episode, but I remember seeing that film, which I haven't seen since then, since the 90s. I remember thinking, when they announced that this movie was getting made, uh, Ewan McGregor would be a pretty sick young Obi-Wan. And then there he was. <laughs> uh, Natalie Portman, pretty young at this point. 14 when they started filming, right? 15? She was young. She had been in The Professional and Heat. Heat, one of the best action movies of all time. If you haven't seen Heat, watch it as soon as this is done. Pacino and De Niro, Val Kilmer, great shit. But The Professional was really her. I mean, that was her, like, yeah, I think it was a breakout. step onto, onto the, the stage. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What a film. So what about Samuel L. at this point was what? Pulp Fiction and Jurassic Park? Jackie Brown. Yeah, he was already falling into the Tarantino world heavily. Okay. Like he was being, you know, Tarantino had fallen in love with him, I think. And and clearly, as we know now, I mean, he's been in like yeah. so many of those films. And yeah. Samuel was a very, I feel like he's a 90s staple. You know what yeah, I mean? Like totally. I think of so many films back then he was in. So He was the one for me as a teenager that was the big star that was kind of a surprise. In this film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which is funny because to me, Ewan McGregor was because I had probably watched Trainspotting literally like a hundred times before this came out. So yeah. <laughs> he was like a movie star to me, even though no one, no one even watched that movie. Like I thought it was like so good. So of course everyone's seen it. You know, it was like, it was different back then because you couldn't check like IMDb and streaming and box office stuff. It was just like, if you loved a movie, you just thought it was a huge movie, you know? Right. Ian McDermott, he was in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and Sleepy Hollow. I didn't know any of this actually. I didn't either. I've never seen him in anything besides Star Wars. <laughs> he was a doctor in the Tim Burton version of Sleepy Hollow. Jake Lloyd was in Jingle All the Way. Didn't know that. Ray Park, known mostly for X-Men at this point, playing, um, what's the character? Toad. There you go. G.I. Joe as well. He was um, one of the ninja dudes. Yeah. Never saw it. Played with a lot of G.I. Joes, but took a hard pass on those. <laughs> Kira Knightley who played one of the Queen's handmaids, I guess they're called, right? One of the uh, stand-ins for her. 
The decoys? Was decoys, she like actual yeah. an actor? A decoy? Yeah, okay. So yeah, not a small cast, but not a huge cast like some of the newer, the, the sequel trilogy and the Star Wars stories. But a solid cast, really talented actors. Two hour, 16 minute runtime, rated PG. This is the first PG rated Star Wars film that we've done on this podcast. Kicking it old school. Old school for children's. Budget estimated 115 million. Not a ton. They talk about 50 million a lot in the documentary. Like that was the set yeah, number. Yeah, for sure. I wonder how much of that budget was promotional as well. Yeah, that would have been included, Nick, I think, as far as like the production budget was 50. I think how often is that included when you read that number, though? I guess you never really know. But I never right. really thought about that. Yeah. I mean, definitely in that, in that behind the scenes doc, George said 50 million for sure. He said it a lot, and they were very worried and concerned in the documentary about meeting and staying at that budget. And I would say that based on the fact that he basically made this movie himself, jumping another $65 million, if that's the official tally, probably does include the promotion because I don't think as an independent filmmaker— Yeah, it's got to be 20th Century Foxes. Yeah. yeah, as an independent filmmaker, I don't think $65 million is like, oh, yeah, well, we went over budget a little bit. <laughs> that's like, that's like, and the company is—that's it. The doors are closed. Thanks for coming. Uh, you will not get severance. You know, like that's like really bad news. Because so. this was, for all intents and purposes, an indie film distributed by a major— Lucasfilm did all of this out of pocket. So George Lucas essentially did this out of pocket. And I think when you watch it thinking $50 million and you realize how much of it they did in post, even though it feels like at some points when you're watching it, 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 do, it still feels like massive and very like a grand scale. You watch that documentary. Again, everyone will have that doc in the show notes. You really should watch it. But a lot of it was like the shots, like the, the actual filming of the actors was just like very close up on their faces, you know, interaction and dialogue. And then CGI. Again, I may not know what I'm talking about, but I, I feel like that's a pretty reasonable number, $50 million. In my opinion, they shot all the actors as fast as humanly possible so that they could move into the post-production and film, you know, and create Jar Jar Binks and, right. and uh, the, all the ships and the battle droids and all the things they did in CG, which that seems to me like they maybe would have kept it a, around that number, but I'm not sure. They did build a ton of practical sets and props, though. Yeah, but they did that back on the original trilogy and their budgets were nowhere near that high. I think having the sound stages and been carpenters and stuff, you know, because they build all those sets out of wood and foam and stuff. I mean, I don't think that's the most expensive stuff. I think when you get into the, the crazy practical battle sequences and stuff, like in the newer Avengers films and stuff like that, when you're when it's Lord of the Rings and all that stuff, uh, the quality and cost of the CGI has gone up. You know, it's just it's a lot. It's a whole different thing. I don't know. I, again, I could be totally wrong. I just think that watching the film a lot of the camera work is very close on the actors and it's not it's just like i think 50 million is a believable number well it grossed 64.8 million opening week in the u.s opening weekend which is by today's dollars a lot 64 mil will be now be almost 100 somewhere around 100 mil something like that so yeah not too shy but that's because we all went to see it opening night like it was twice it was a global event (laughs) twice yeah for sure (laughs) It grossed 474 total uh, in the U.S., 1.3 billion worldwide, which for the time is insane—a billion dollars. Yeah. So it was it was a billion and a half now. Yeah, and that's, that's wild, crazy. 6.5 on IMDb, 53% on Rotten Tomatoes, 59% audience score, 51 on Metacritic. Again, not well received. And when you see those kind of reviews, it's when you include audience score and you look across. It's it's across the board. Nominated for Best Sound, Sound Effects Editing, Visual Effects, but didn't win any awards, Academy Awards. But, 90, I mean, 99 was like one of the biggest movie years ever. 
So despite all of its technological innovations, all of its visual effects innovations didn't win. I mean, that was the year the fucking Matrix came out. So among others. Shot entirely digitally on a custom-built, first-of-its-kind Panavision camera. Panavision worked on this camera, just a 1080 HD, 35mm equivalent, supposedly. Digital camera was the first of its kind. And that has had me wondering for like a few years, and now that it's officially on Disney Plus and 4K and everything, how they upscaled it to 4K. I don't know, but I think you can totally tell that it's not shot on film. And I think that's one of the biggest flaws in the film. I think it's one one of the biggest mistakes he made. Haven't we talked about how Abrams kind of did both in in a lot of the newer stuff? Like it was film and digital for IMAX and stuff. Maybe that wasn't as big of a thing back then, but I just think when you watch it, it looks off. It looks strange. Well, the idea was to push the envelope and to innovate. I get that. I fully back that. But I think the pushing of the technology to make A New Hope and the other original trilogy was out of necessity, straight up necessity. We wanted to see these things on screen and there was no way to do it. So stuff literally had to be invented. I don't think there's necessarily anything in this film that required that. Maybe as a lead into episode two and three, doing things like the Yoda fight and whatever, you had to lay the groundwork to get there with CG. But I don't think there's anything in here that you couldn't have done with even... 1983 technology for sure you know? and i keep referencing it but we watch this behind the scenes stuff and at one point in the doc he says quote i may have gone too far with this one i wonder if he was a little tongue-in-cheek though i don't know man the, the scene is them watching the rough the first rough cut of the film and and it's very strange in the room after it's over and he kind of like leans back in the chair and strangely says like uh like it's almost a sigh you know he's like i i, I may have i may have gone too far with this one yeah his his brain hurt Yeah, because the conversation in the room, right, it was about how it feels kind of convoluted and fast and like that it's already super long. And there was just like you're cutting from this to that to that. That's what all the kind of producers in the room are talking to him about. And he just seems overwhelmed. And he seems like, oh, I might have only to your point that I don't I don't think that necessity that you brought up, which made the first film so innovative was was part of this. This was like, I can. So I will not. I have to. So I will, you know, or have to in a different way. Like he felt like he had to innovate. Otherwise he wouldn't be fulfilling what Star Wars is expected to be. You know what I mean? Right. But I I think that was just a little misguided. You know, all we wanted was another sweet Star Wars story. He for sure has a compulsion for innovation and there's no knob to turn that down for like, it just seems like he has to innovate at all costs. And yeah, this is what happened. What was cool though, on the practical level is they went back to Tunisia to film all of the Tatooine stuff back to the original locations, rebuilt the sets because those, of course, had been nearly destroyed. I think that's fucking amazing that they went back there. They also shot in Italy quite a bit in England back at Pinewood Studios. So good shit. Some of the cool Tunisia stuff, they had a, there was a terrible light, uh, lightning and windstorm that ripped through early in production and just, just mangled the sets and the pod racers and everything. And they, which was kind of a twofold problem where they had to then innovate more CGI to to make up time with the pod racing stuff where some of that stuff was going to be more practical, but they were just mangled and destroyed. And then they had to like rebuild all the sets. And also it was like, I think it was 135 Fahrenheit was, was a pretty normal day. Holy shit. Um, yeah. And you had, you had Ahmad Best in the, in the Jar Jar practical suit, which is basically like a, made out of latex, you know, all day in 135 degree heat, walking around and doing all that body acting and 
it was crazy. There were assistants all over him with with fans and spray bottles and stuff all day. It was just I can't even imagine, dude, being out there in that heat doing in those costumes. All the extras in the costumes, you know, and most of those that a lot of that's local talent. You know, they hire there. Yeah. In Tunisia, so it's it's people who are they're stoked. They're like getting work on a on a film like this, and they're like, all right, here, put on this fifty pound latex head um, and stand out in the sun for four hours before we call action. It's crazy. But dude, Ahmed Best was just all smiles in that whole documentary. Just like, well, fuck it. Yeah. Whatever. I'm in Star Wars. He was pumped. Yeah. He had a great vibe. Do you guys remember the movie poster? The very first one, sort of teaser poster, The Shadow? Oh, yeah. That was oh, yeah. brilliant. Yes. Mind blown. Mind melted. Mind blown. All of it. So good. It was all of the potential wrapped up to, into like one piece of art. Yeah. You walk by it in the theater, just like, cause again, you couldn't see that poster online. You couldn't use it as your screensaver on your computer <laughs> or like your, your home, your lock screen on your phone. You know, it was like you had to be at the movie theater to see it. And it was, it was so epic. Yeah, dude. I just got goosebumps just picturing the poster <laughs> still is one of the coolest things we've ever seen from star Wars. I think. I don't know if I wasn't like nerdy enough or maybe I just moved on to liking other things at that point. But when I heard they were making new Star Wars, like I just it never occurred to me to think about how Anakin turned. So the fact that that was going to be what the prequels were about was in itself like very exciting for me and mind blowing to me because I hadn't just personally thought about that ever. It was always about those original movies and it was more about Luke's story. But it became something so much more where the story arc was just the first six movies became about Anakin Vader and not Luke. I remember having kind of a similar revelation. I don't know who I was talking to, but I was, I said the words, this is actually the story of Anakin Skywalker, not Luke Skywalker. It hit me. Same thing. I guess I was just too young or not invested on that level yet enough to really have inferred that prior. But I think a lot of fans probably were awakened to that idea by that poster. Yeah. Do you guys remember seeing the trailer for the first time or at all? I don't. I was I, I was looking at the show notes that trying to think about it, and I don't remember seeing it for the first time. Yeah, I don't really have a memory of that. I remember a friend, dude, that I went to high school with, I was in my first band with, had seen the trailer and then called me just freaking out. It was like, dude, he's, I remember verbatim, he said, did you hear about the new Darth? <laughs> like before we knew the word Sith or anything like that, because there's that there's the shot of the double bladed lightsaber in the trailer, and I remember that actually pretty vividly, and that was of course fucking mind bending to see that because who would have thought? I don't know. As a teenager, I wouldn't have thought. Oh, what if he had a double one? I was just fully yeah. in whatever was on screen before. You know, it made it feel like exciting. Like there was definitely something really big and yeah. grand and new about this experience. You know, so how many times did you guys see it in theaters? Do you remember where you were or? much. I mean, it was a long ass time ago. I remember for sure seeing it back to back on opening night. I still lived on Long Island. Uh, I remember going with at least one buddy. I remember what theater I was at. And I do remember having a very conflicted feeling after the first time. And I was like, I hope I like it again when I see it in, in an hour. But yeah, I think that that was really it. I mean, I not for nothing, I don't remember a lot about that p- part of my life. All of my 20s, I kind of just don't remember. And I never even did any hard drugs or anything like that. <laughs> it's just kind of control-alt-delete all of my 20s. Yeah. I was, um, I definitely remember where and when everything about the first time I saw it. We were 19, right? We were 19 years old that year? Yeah. So I had that January of 1999, I had dropped out of college for my first time, 
because uh, kids, I'm an overachiever and I dropped out of college twice. But the first <laughs> time, and I had moved to from Jacksonville, Florida, where I grew up to Santa Cruz, California. Full on rock and roll story through all of my shit in the back of my car and drove across the country to Santa Cruz to play in a band with a bunch of dudes that I'd never met before. Like the way I got in the band was their like original AOL, you know, HTML website had a pager <laughs> number on it to like page the drummer because they were looking for guitar players. The band was called Craig's Brother. They were on Tooth and Nail Records. And when I got out there, like I was sleeping on a futon in a garage with a space heater next to my head. And the, the reason I remember all of this is because like the movie was on tour. So I went out there in January and by May we had finally gotten a van and a trailer. So we were either in Fort Collins, Boulder or Denver. I can't remember, but I know we were in Colorado and we had gone to like Toys R Us to get the like flip out plastic lightsabers, you know, <laughs> and yeah. same as you, Nick. I was so excited. I was just beside myself that this was finally happening because I was just such a Star Wars kid, man. I grew up in with every toy and everything, you know, like when I was a little, little kid, when I was three or four years old after my first Star Wars experiences, like the hallway in my house had doorways on both sides and my dad and I would play like the cell block 1138 scene, like <laughs> blasting each other down the hallway, like as a little, little kid, my earliest memories of it. So I was so excited about it. And I just remember I don't know. I don't, I, I don't, I definitely remember feeling really un, unfulfilled and I hate that I have to like admit that, but it just, that's what it felt like. I just didn't really know what I had experienced. And and it comes back to talking about, I don't remember seeing the trailer for the first time, but I definitely remember seeing the poster and the hype was real from that poster. But, but, you know, I think what's important to take away from it though, is the excitement to see it, you know, and it didn't look We'll get into Attack of the Clones, but I remember when that was coming out, I felt exactly the same, like as far as going in to watch it. So I think the thing to take away is like, it doesn't really matter. Like no matter what, you're still a fan and you're still like, it's okay, we'll get the next one or whatever the the feeling is. But like, I remember just feeling so beyond excited to walk in the theater and see it. As much as I remember not liking the movie, I also remember that feeling too. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's such a, to me, like at this point in my life, it's Star Wars is like about community. It's about bringing people together. And like, For sure. you've, you know, uh, I don't know, Ryan, if you've been, but Adam, you've been to Celebration. Like that's literally heaven for Star Wars fans. Yeah. You feel like you're around 20,000, however many people are there, who are all mostly in a good mood, who all like the same thing. I mean, really any convention you go to, if it's Comic-Con, you know, it's, I mean, I still saw some total turds wearing like fire Kathleen Kennedy shirts. And of course they were like uh, come on. older than Yoda. I'm like, get, get a life, dude, <laughs> seriously. But it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, what do you like at this point? Because are you a fan of the innovation? Are you a fan of the scripts, the characters, merchandise? There's so much to like about Star Wars and like people have to focus on why they're still around or why they still care. To me, what draws me to it is the the positive sides of the community. Like I said, using the prequels as like a Cliff Notes version of the Skywalker saga to pick and choose the scenes that mean a lot to you. At that point, though, we're like you said, like 1918, we don't know how to be introspective. We don't know how to divide up what our eyeballs saw and what like our hearts feel. We don't know. We were just like, what was that? That was weird. <laughs> also helpful, though, is that you didn't have a supercomputer in your pocket that you could pick up and tell the whole oh, world. Absolutely. You just had to sort of actually consider your own thoughts and not worry about self-promotion and look at me and my opinion about this. You know, it was like, yeah. It was a very different experience to be critical of something, I think, than it would be now, as we saw with The Last Jedi. For sure. Yep, I agreed. What about you, bud? First time I saw it, 
I didn't remember this, but I have the ticket stub. I actually started collecting ticket stubs earlier in 99, starting with The Matrix. And I have every movie ticket stub, period, since then. 20 years of movie ticket stubs. <laughs> I saw it at St. Charles 18, uh, Warenberg? Yeah, in St. Charles, which is an adjacent county to St. Louis, for anyone who's not from here. I remember talking to a friend from the same band, one of my best friends from high school, because he had seen it earlier in the day. And I asked him what he thought. And he's like, dude, it was amazing. Everything I could have wanted out of a Star Wars movie. And I was like, holy shit, I'm so pumped. I can't wait. All I had was that poster on my mind. So I went into it, you know, just like planning on being stoked. And I left thinking, I don't know how stoked I am. <laughs> But wanting, more than anything, wanting to love it so much and focusing really on all the stuff I did like, which was, of course, the brilliant lightsaber choreography, everything about Ewan McGregor and seeing Star Wars again, period, got me stoked. So I had a good experience. I saw it three times, had the ticket stubs. I was honestly stoked for more. I was like, okay, that was an appetizer. Anakin's going to grow up. Shit's going to get gnarly. It's going to get dark. I'm pumped. So I wasn't bummed. I feel like I had some of that experience as far as like there were definitely things, the lightsaber choreography and stuff like that. Like you said, it, that stuff I do remember being like, that was killer. And it was Star Wars. I wasn't walking out of the theater, like smashing my plastic Toys R Us lightsaber on the ground. Right. There were still things about it that I remember feeling like, well, that was sick. But I just think it was an overall sort of uneasy feeling about yeah. not really understanding where it was going or not feeling like the stakes were very high. I would say that yeah. now. I don't know that that's the verbiage I would have used back then, but and and watching it again for the first time in probably 15 years to get ready for this podcast, like I definitely remember feeling like what I would equate now to feeling like the stakes in the film just weren't anywhere near as high as I thought they were going to be. Well, let's shift our perspective and get on to a certain point of view. A certain point of view? Many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. So there are a handful of things that I remember people being super bummed on. And I remember thinking, and I still think to this day, that those gripes are kind of misplaced, misdirected, or kind of unnecessary, just nitpicks. Some. There's a couple in here that I fully endorse and agree with. And watching it again, again, for the first time in like 15 years, with these in mind, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. But the world's for sure even more of a different place than it was then. So of course, it's so of course. much more noticeable It's, it's now obvious now, any, yeah. Any of the stereotypes. Yeah. yeah. It's so much more obvious now. Yeah. So let's do a light one first. I don't know if this is a gripe per se, but it was kind of a question. And I think it's, I don't know, it's not vague to me. The question was, who is the Phantom Menace? Is it Maul? Is it Palpatine? Is it both? Is it something else? For me, there's an Easter egg that we should talk about that actually I like the best out of those options that, that none of them were. <laughs> and it's a YouTube video that that's circulated among Star Wars fans for years now. I forgot we are going to talk about that. That Jar Jar was the Phantom Menace. Yeah, <laughs> we should talk about that. But I, I, I mean, I think the obvious answer is Palpatine. I mean, that's not... Or the Sith, period. Yeah, yeah. But just yeah. the idea that it was, you know, someone that was in plain sight pretending to be good and, and underneath was evil. And the obvious character in the film is Chancellor Palpatine. Here's something weird, though, and I'm still to this day, I don't know what Lucas really intended. I remember thinking as a 19-year-old, that's the same guy, right? The Emperor and that Palpatine. Like, I knew the name Palpatine, even though it had never been set on screen. It was only in books and things, and I think in, like, trading cards and things like that, or, like, game cards. I knew-ish that he was Palpatine, but I wondered, are we supposed to notice that? Hmm. Is it supposed to be, like, 
twins? Are they brothers? Are they the same dude? Because to me, it was like obvious, like, yeah, that's the same dude. But am I supposed to know that? What do you guys feel about that? Did you know that at the time? Yeah, I, I think I felt the same way. I was like, that's that guy, right? But they're not saying it's the guy and they're never right. in the same place at the same time. And what's going on here? But it was kind of like, almost like you didn't think it was Emperor Palpatine because it was so obvious. Right. You were like, that can't be him, right? Oh, but it is, but it isn't. I don't know. I think you have to consider the general population of fans going to see it would not have read novels, would not have done trading cards. You know, I, I mean, I don't know, but he kind of maybe was thinking some people will get it. Some people won't, but there's no way to not call him that if that was going to be his name. But for, for me personally, I honestly don't remember. I, I don't remember watching it and, and thinking one way or the other because it was 21 years ago and I haven't really considered this yeah. film much. I know it was also in the novelizations going back as far as a new hope. So it was out there. I think it honestly would have been cooler if he would have gone like the twin brother or the clone route or something. And they ended up actually being two different dudes. If he was like, almost like just puppeteering him, manipulating him, I think that would have been kind of sick. Anyway, midichlorians, the idea that Lucas took the mysticism of the force and gave it a real world kind of scientific-esque explanation. So many people hated this. We're just completely bummed out by it. How about you guys? I have strong opinions on this. What do you think? I have zero issue with it. I, I think it's an it's an explanation and it computes. I think the execution of it, it was like a passing piece of information that you, you watch it and you're like, wait, this is a huge reveal. And it's this casual conversation about immaculate conception. Like, yeah, I don't know. There was no dad. I don't know. I know. No big deal. I don't really know. I just, <laughs> I was just pregnant one day and next scene. But personally for me, it works and it explains why some people in the galaxy are force sensitive and others are not. It doesn't make it like a random lottery, you know, and it works with his inclusion that he tried, you know, he brought so much political and religious influence into these stories from all walks of life and all races and countries and, and nations, whatever, uh, you know, around the world as far as like influences on, on this story. And I think that that's a cool sort of religious take on the force because the forces, the Jedi are in their own right, a religion, you know, and I, I think it's still mythical to me. It still holds that fantastical mythical thing, but it doesn't hold the the faith of religion. It's like, well, it's not magic anymore. Yeah. But it's like, to me, this is sci-fi, which leads with, with science fiction. So it's like, right. And I, I enjoy I'm, the idea that there's science behind it. Same. I'm on the, I'm on the same page. I for sure at that, at that point in my life had not as much as I loved Star Wars, I didn't feel like I knew more than George Lucas. So I was right. there just accepting the information that came out. I didn't feel like entitled that I knew better than the maker, you know? So like, and, and just again, being 19, I'm the world is my oyster. I'm taking it all in as, as, as it comes. So if there's an explanation as to why people are force sensitive, then I just accepted it as part of the story. So it didn't ruin the like fantasy of it to me because I think I just accepted it as for what it was. I think the idea that it demystifies the force and that's a bad thing comes from a perspective that I think is maybe more leaning towards the idea of magic and mysticism being a good thing and sort of ignoring like the wonder and majesty that is the universe as it exists, because we can only see this tiny little sliver of what really exists, but there's all this crazy shit down to like the tiniest, most invisible levels up to the gigantic scale of the cosmos. And this is that it's amazing. Like there's so much other shit that we can't even 
tap into with our medium view of the universe. And I think that makes it no less poetic that it's not magic, that it's not supernatural. When I think about it now, but having like almost like a mentality of a 19 year old back then thinking of what I would have thought, like to me, I wouldn't want everyone to be on a level playing field and you just have to try really hard to have the force, right. you know, like yeah. I think that there should be because you think about this. got it. Yeah, yeah. Just do your lessons some more. (laughs) Yeah. So that's like the, the magical mysticism part of it is like, I don't know, there does need to be some sort of explanation and whether midichlorians is it, or maybe midichlorians needed to be explained better, whatever it is, I think there needed to be a reason. And I accepted this to a certain extent to be the reason. I just never thought of it again because I was watching a movie. I like accepted it for what it was it just yeah, i just like i think now it's it is because the newer movies are you know they're not talking about midichlorians but just in general jedi are like a myth at the, at the beginning of force awakens have been like the thought of jedi have been completely erased from the galaxy so we're kind of back into that mysticism realm i don't know midichlorians could play a role i mean obviously the more you have the more strong you're going to be because anakin had more than yoda and those were like the two highest at least on the jedi side that we know as far as like midichlorian counts but i guess my main point is i don't think it should just be something the force shouldn't just be something you have to try really hard and learn and then you have it there does have to be something special about you i guess biologically that makes more sense to me well, I was going to say that maybe to wrap up the midichlorian thing, like think about how much it still does leave unanswered to pick it apart and say like it answers all the questions and that be your gripe with it is, is bullshit to me because why are some children born with midichlorian and others are not? That's that's still not answered. I mean, if you think about yeah. the idea that Jedi are not under the law of Jedi allowed to reproduce, why are some younglings born with them and others are not? I think that's still a huge mystery and it's never been answered. And I think that's cool because there's the religion of it. You know, there's the faith of it, that there will always be Jedi will be born and, and it may take, you know, with Order 66 comes into effect and they're they're harder to find and they're being snuffed out. But like, why are they born again? I think it gives it enough science but also keeps it, as Adam said, rooted in that mysticism and, and magic. Anything that we don't understand is magic, essentially, whether it's natural stuff or like the Arthur C. Clarke quote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. You know, mm-hmm. Arthur C. Clarke, 2001. That applies here, that kind of idea. So like you said, once the Jedi have been kind of like wiped from history by the Empire and the First Order, then they, they become myth again and the cycle repeats and it's, it's beautiful still. And we could probably just all chalk this up to just execution. We probably say the word execution 9,000 times in this episode. But as much as I would have loved for it to be sussed out a little bit more, I do like the idea that Anakin is born of the Force. I just think that you don't have to think about those midichlorians anymore. To me, it's very mythological that somebody is born to serve a purpose and Anakin's purpose is to bring balance to the force. And he takes a long winded route to get there. But the fact that he is born of the force means the force created him to bring balance, which I think is really, I tend to think is really cool. There's a comic book out there that is not necessarily truth, but there's a couple of panels where Anakin, or I guess at that point, Vader is dreaming and has a vision of Palpatine basically creating Anakin in Shmi's stomach. Yeah. It's a vision, so you know it's not necessarily fact that 
the emperor created Anakin, but it is a vision that Anakin had. So it's kind of cool to just like float out there that that's kind of a possibility and just lends itself to be, uh, I don't know, part of this moment that Anakin is born for a reason. Well, we now know down the road that Palpatine obviously was all about creating. There was a directive to create things and try to manipulate people by creating life forms and clones and whatever you want it wanted to be so mm-hmm. but that said there's no way in my opinion there's no way that was really in lucas's head right when he was creating this in his mind right. yeah this was like his take on how to bring the immaculate conception because i think there's a lot of christianity and there's a lot of buddhism in star yeah. wars in, in general right religion wise i think that's those are the two biggest pools he pulled from and and you can't i don't think you can argue that with the idea that anakin is now as we see in this film literally immaculately conceived so there's no right. more arguing that he pulled from christianity for this film right or for the story right i think that that's awesome and i think all of his political and religious influences are what make this story so great because he's not playing favorites with any one of them. He's using the best parts of all of them and the coolest parts of all of those mythologies to create one mythology, right? I think the, and I know this is a gripe and I opened this whole thing saying we weren't going to gripe and I've ended up griping the whole time. I'm really sorry. But I think the mark that was missed here is that you have this concept of here on earth, not in a galaxy far, far away. We have the Christian religion and this mythology that's lasted for 2000 years of this immaculate conception. You're going to be bold and you're going to put that in your story. You're just going to go for it. Like I'm dropping this bomb. There is no father. He was born of midichlorian alone. And in the film, it is a fleeting moment of information and neither Shmi or Qui-Gon react to it in any way that affects you as a viewer. And that's what bothers me is it could be one actor in the scene that like didn't necessarily execute it properly or nail it or, or believe it or listen properly or all the things you need to do in a scene. But to me, both of them, there's no father. And 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 Liam Neeson, Qui-Gon, he's like, okay, cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. What's the next piece of information you have to deliver me? Yeah. yeah. Dude, that moment should have been, Luke, I'm your father. Yeah. It should have carried that weight. It's unfortunate. And, and I think the positive spin is that the story is great. The story is right. The idea yeah. is right. The concept is right. So let's leave it there. But all three of us would say, Contrary to what the haters think about the idea being used at all, we all think it's pretty fucking sweet. Yeah, I think so. The idea is is incredible. I, I totally think it's like one of the coolest things he's done story-wise as far as, as I said, taking those huge real-life influences and stories and mythologies and turning them into the world we know of Star Wars. All right, there are some other things that are hard <laughs> kind of heavy to argue against. The racist undertones whether it be accents or the look of characters. There are a few here, all of which have been responded to by Lucas or by the actors in varying degrees of wokeness or awareness of perspectives. So the Nemodians at the beginning, the the, um, Trade Federation, yeah, their accents. It's the worst one for me. People will say that they have sort of Asian stereotypes and Ryan, you said kind of Italian accents you kind of felt from it? Actually, that might be an, an argument to say like, see, it's not. It's not like a racist thing because it wasn't one or the other. But I was watching it last night and I couldn't help but notice the, the, the reality of this criticism. It's just there. It's just there. Like they're borderline, the way they're pronouncing their consonants, the way they're, it's like they're doing it in the most terrible sounding racist ways towards like Asian Americans and, and Asian, English speaking Asian people 
it was like shocking. But I also think that in addition to that, and uh, this is just my own like takeaway from it, there's also like this sort of parody-esque Italian rhythm to like the way they're speaking to. And again, like you almost feel like I'm scared to say any of this because am I being racist because I noticed that it sounds that way or I think it sounds that way. I don't know. I don't know if I'm right or wrong. I just felt... I felt as uncomfortable watching it as I do talking about it. So I know it's wrong. Whatever, whatever it is, <laughs> it, was, it was wrong of them to do, in my opinion. It, it's a strange thing. And I felt very strongly about it watching the film last night. I, I, re- I really noticed it. And I would say out of all of these that you're going to list, the, the Trade Federation guys were the most noticeable to me. That were just kind of like, what on earth were you thinking by giving them this accent? Like, what, what were you thinking? So I don't know. Chime in. Yeah, I, I I just wonder what the conversation was. Like, what do you say in 1999? Like, we're, like add more Asian? Like, what do you? Like, how do you? <laughs> I don't know. You know, like, it really is just so mind boggling to me how it got to that point. It's mind boggling. Yeah, it's mind boggling. I always perceived them as more French ish kind of um, inflection and cadence. When it was first brought to my attention that there were these Asian stereotypes, I actually didn't hear it. I didn't perceive it that way. But again, it has so much to do with perspective. And I, I guess my response to this would be, and this is a whole conversation in, a, in and of itself, but the idea of labeling it racist versus racially tone deaf and insensitive. Because I think there are lots of cases where traditionally Caucasian people have played other races in Hollywood, and it's always been a big problem. It's always been super fucked up. I think this, in the case of really any alien species where you're sort of inventing a language or you're inventing an accent, no matter what, unless you're like a brilliant linguist, it's going to come from your perspective. If you grow up learning English and maybe only English or you, or you don't learn another language until later, the stuff that you kind of lean towards is going to be based on that perspective. Like you hear people speaking in tongues in church and stuff. It's always the sounds that they would know as English speakers or Spanish speakers or whatever. It's never truly something that has nothing to do with their native language. So we have these perspectives that are built in, sometimes terribly biased and fucked up based on just entrenched systematic shit, and sometimes just like completely benign. I hope this was completely benign, but I I don't know. Well, Adam, I think you said the right word, I, th- I think. Again, this is such a touchy subject. I mean, and I hope we're, we're navigating it correctly, but it, it should be discussed, I think. And I, I think saying that it's tone deaf, I think, is more accurate. Um, I think you look at something like F- Fisher Stevens in Short Circuit, just a white man playing an Indian man and doing the accent and, and, and these over-exaggerated mannerisms. And I mean, it's just, just, that's just fucked up. I mean, yeah. it's just straight fucked up and wrong and i can't believe that was allowed to happen back back then but this to me as far as saying that it's more racially tone deaf than racist you know to call george lucas a racist it's it's unfortunate you know to have to even have this conversation about it but i think saying that it's more deaf is that so much of star wars was inspired by asian culture whether it's the samurai through the jedi or or so many of the landscapes and cityscapes and things he he built and, and created for for all the films. I'm sure it was rooted with a true reverence. I, I, that, exactly, exactly. I think so much of it was probably rooted in that reverence and respect. But that said, if you wanted to have some characters that were emulating Asian themes and Asian culture, you're making a fifty million dollar fucking movie. 
hire some Asian people, hire the right people to play the roles and to pay respect to the race and the culture. And that's not what happened here. So tone deaf or racist or whichever one it was, I think the bottom line, unfortunately, is that if you agree with what we're saying, that it's that it's present in the film, it was wrong. That's the bottom line. It was done wrong. It was poor fucking execution on so many levels. There's another one, Jar Jar's accent and look. It has been said that the voice is sort of a, a Jamaican stereotype kind of vibe and that his look, his ears emulate dreadlocks, which I never thought of. And I actually learned recently today that Lucas largely based Jar Jar's look, his mannerisms, everything on Goofy from the Disney cartoons. Oh, yeah. I've heard that before. And it's not shocking because the whole <laughs> character was one of the goofiest sh- things I've ever seen. So, <laughs> Ahmed Best being an African-American, I lean towards him probably not trying to parody another African-originated group of people and disrespect them. I mean, he, he is American. He's not Jamaican. So maybe there's that too. But I see this more as, as another just case of being tone deaf, potentially, if anything. A little bit. Yeah, I, I think, too, like it's, he's clearly supposed to be a character for kids. So I don't think that there could be rooted racism or stereotypes or anything. I mean, it seems more likely that it's based on Goofy than it is anything other that could be perceived as a stereotype or racist or anything like that. Yeah. Also, compared to the Trade Federation, the the Gungans had more of their kind of own language and their own way of speaking. Yeah. So I don't I don't think it's quite as I, I don't think there's as much of a case to to say that this was like so deliberately done or or even overlooked. You know, if I had to compare the two, I I feel like the Gungans are more kind of cartoonish and and goofy. It's the right word, and I I think that was what they were searching for to make that. I mean. Look, do I see what people are talking about? Maybe. Yes, I do. Like, I, it's, it's, I can understand where the concern may have been rooted, but I don't think it's the same thing as the what to me sounds like white people stereotyping Asian people's voices in the other right. characters, which is just yeah. just fucked up. Watto's look, accent and role is said to be heavily rooted in Jewish stereotypes, which I actually get. I think this one is whatever another click past tone deaf is. <laughs> rooted in just like like the kind of cultural stereotypes and norms that become accepted somehow like it's just okay to be like oh yeah that's the jewish guy he's good with money like no no man like what so i i get this one and i agree i I totally hear that i think it is just completely tone deaf reference to a very wrong and insulting stereotype i i I think he totally missed the mark yeah uh with wado here's my issue my hot take about wado and I'm ready. We could talk about the stereotypes. We, we've covered that. Every single thing, once you meet Watto, every single thing that we know about Star Wars is Watto's fault. Every single thing. <laughs> there's, a point, there's a point where Qui-Gon has a, a wager with Watto, and Qui-Gon tries to take Shmi Skywalker and Anakin Skywalker as his part of the bet if he wins. And Watto says no, and Qui-Gon responds and just says, okay, then just the boy. From that point on, everything changed. Anakin's the fucked stakes up were, because of it. Yeah. If the stakes were just Anakin, he's going to miss his mom and turn into Vader. If the stakes were Shmi and Anakin, and Anakin won that pod race, and Shmi and Anakin get to go with Qui-Gon, movie's over. No Darth <laughs> Vader. <laughs> so every Balance single thing brought. we know. Yeah. Every single thing we know 
was skewed and brought to us by Watto. So there's my Watto hot take. Was he the Phantom Menace? Enough people talking about everything. Yeah. Maybe. In retrospect, 21 years later, Watto is the Phantom Menace. I don't like the idea of thinking that the whole entire thing hangs in the balance of a weird turkey flying looking parody guy. Not a fan. Not a fan of that. The casting of Jake Lloyd is definitely a point of contention for a lot of fans. I remember wanting a different type of young Anakin Skywalker. I wanted someone a lot more kind of reserved and almost like however introspective a nine-year-old can be, but somebody a little kind of creepier, like the kid from... Kurt, what year did uh, The Sixth Sense come out? Exactly. I was going to say the kid from The Sixth Sense. That's why we do this podcast together. <laughs> I, re- I remember wanting... Haley Joe Osmond from The Sixth Sense, which was shortly before this. So obviously The Phantom Menace was already made and everything. But I remember thinking like, oh, this would have been the fucking kid. This little creepy kid. Just the kind of actor, the style of performance. Like he brings so much weight to a scene. But from a certain point of view, I can see how Lucas really wanted the turn to be as extreme as possible. From this little happy-go-lucky, just bubbly kid to the most evil son of a bitch in the world, in the universe. That, I get that. That makes sense. Yeah. And if you think about Haley Osmond, like his most all, almost every role he ever played as a kid, and there wasn't a chapter in the film where he was happy-go-lucky. He, right. he just nailed like the disturbed or super introspective, multi-layered child. And yeah. I hear that, that like Lucas probably did want a very wide-eyed, innocent, you know, he wanted to convey all those things before he turned to Anakin. I get it. And it's, that works. But like there are, Definitely young actors who could portray a wide-eyed child that also carried a lot of weight and depth. Yeah. Again, like I hate taking apart someone's work. I don't, it's not my work. I didn't do it. So I don't feel good saying like Jake Lloyd, you didn't do a good job. But I mean, you're allowed to watch a film and have an opinion about a performance in a constructive way. And I just think that the stakes weren't high enough. So let me float this uh, idea to you guys. It's not my idea. I've had this conversation before with my friend Alex. He has his own uh, Star Wars YouTube podcast show called Black Series Rebels. So he said, imagine if the first time you see Anakin Skywalker is basically Attack of the Clones. And then the middle movie is Revenge of the Sith, where you have half Anakin and then a little bit of Vader. And then you have a third movie that's all Vader. Yeah. How much better of a trilogy would that be? You know, like, do we really need to see nine-year-old Anakin be a little kid? You know, like, plus we would have gotten a full Vader movie, which would have been amazing. I think it's still in the cards. Yeah, be cool. Or it could have been the first act was finding him and then it jumps the same amount of time as episode one to two does. And then second and third acts are that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that always intrigued me just because, I mean, obviously look at the ratings and just just imagine it didn't start there and it started at Attack of the Clones where why can't it just be Obi-Wan and Anakin as a Padawan? Right. And that's where the story starts. We don't need to see, you know, we don't need to know necessarily more about the Immaculate Conception or how he became, how he was found by the Jedi. Like that's stuff that no one really cared to know. We know now, but no one was really asking for that background on Anakin back then anyway. But I think the motivation for it is clear to keep it in a in a positive headspace, you know, is that mm-hmm. Lucas wanted to show, as Adam said, this nine-year-old 
child, just the actual origin of where this innocence of this kid came from. And he didn't even know the power that he had and all those things. And yeah, because it ended up being a not only a film about a nine year old, but in my opinion, a film for nine year olds. But I say that that I understand yeah. and respect where Lucas's head was at and like why he wanted to write that story. Mm hmm. The other kid, the other top choice, the runner-up, I guess, Michael Angarano was his name. He had been in the movie Sky High, and he went on to be in Almost Famous. He's done a ton of stuff. He's like a that guy. <laughs> a that kid. But it didn't work out. Regardless, though, a point I think that's really important to make is kids are hard to direct. It takes a special kind of director to direct kids and get great performances out of them. And Lucas is widely known to be not the most uh like emotionally connected director of actors you know there's always the joke about he would just say uh do it again just faster and more intense mm -hmm. dude he says that in the documentary yeah. he goes the, the first ad on the phantom menace you know they're having the discussion like pre-production do you call action or do i call action because that's the thing sometimes yeah. directors like the ad to call action yeah. and cut so he's asking him and Lucas literally says out loud, I call action and I'm, I'm usually just, you know, faster, more intense guy. Yeah. That's what he says. The words faster, more intense. <laughs> it's like an inside joke. You know, he, he gets it. And th that also goes right along with the running joke with the original trilogy cast about the dialogue. You can write this stuff, but you can't say it. So you combine those things. It, it makes it tough to tell this story for kids. You know, he, he really wanted to tell a new story for a new generation of kids. But I feel like the original trilogy, although it was made for younger people, it appealed to young kids. I don't want to say by accident necessarily, but it was something that was much more grown up in a lot of ways that also happened to be friendly enough to kids. It wasn't hard sci-fi. It wasn't like gory, weird shit. You know what I mean? So it wasn't a kid's movie, but it did appeal so much to kids. You know what I'm saying here? Yeah, absolutely. I have an interesting theory on that. The original trilogy, George Lucas didn't have any kids. Yeah. And when George Lucas was making this film, he had very young kids. Yeah. His children were Anakin's age when he was making this movie. And that changes everything. And, uh, yeah. you know, I'm not going to weigh in on good, bad, indifferent. It just, it changes everything. Yeah. Whereas when he was making the original trilogy, he was a young director making the space epic he wanted to make. And I don't think you're wrong in saying that it affected young audiences by accident. I think it was 100% an accident. I don't think he knew what the audience was. I think he was young enough himself to where he was just making the movie he wanted to make. And the fact that it turned into action figures and everything else that it turned into for young kids was like, whoa, this is crazy. This, because what are the odds of hitting us at our age back then when we were being born, you know, and, and toddlers uh, and also affecting our parents in the way that it did. It's crazy. It's a crazy phenomenon, and it's why Star Wars has lasted for 40 years. It's, it's wild. I was going to say also, from a perspective of someone who makes a lot of films, um, we had a friend of mine named Patrick Husinger on. He is a working actor who has done many films and live theater and is currently the star of a show. And so he has a lot of really interesting perspectives on making films. And and we we have a little screenplay idea we're kicking around. And I, who knows? You know, it's just one of those things. You have a few glasses of wine and are like, hey, cool, bro, let's write a screenplay. But either way, we have this kind of idea we're kicking around and there's children involved in the idea. And so we got to talking about that and he brought up from, from his experience and being in film that not only are kids hard to direct, but kids sometimes audition incredibly well. And then you get them on set and they, this isn't insulting to say they're children. They don't, they haven't had training they're They don't know what they're doing. 
Right. So a lot of times when you're making a movie like this, you get in and you have these five little kids or three little kids that make the final cut down to the wire and you're sitting in front of the director and, and this, as a little kid, you just nail it. As, as we talked about you, Michael Angarano comes in the room and as they, as they say in the documentary hits all the beats, but there was maybe this one take where Jake just blew George Lucas's mind. There was this one screen test that he blew his mind. So he gets the role and then he gets out in front of the camera for, you know, 200 days straight and 400 and whatever scenes he's in. And he just, he doesn't deliver. And I think that's not an insult to a child actor. It's hard to imagine a child actor going into a film on this scale with all the tools needed. That's got to be pretty low odds of, of really hitting it out of the park. Yeah. I think it's a good point too, to say that he was influenced by having children at that point, because it's, it's one of those things where it's like, Hey dude, read the room. Kids also liked the original yeah. trilogy. Mm-hmm. And what did they like about it? But it didn't it. It pander to them. It didn't cater to them. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't pander. But it also, like, when I was seven, I wasn't, you know, laughing at people stepping in dog poop. I wanted to yeah. move shit with yep. my hands and my mind, you know? Like, I was more into fantasy and lightsabers. That's what was drew me in. It never was, oh, look, there's a kid on screen. I'm also a kid. I like this movie. It appealed to so many people, but it's almost like either he didn't know or forgot what appealed about yeah well, he always trilogy. talks about how all of this came from his childhood love of of sci-fi tv serials and things you know and that's what gave him this whole I- idea to create this story was the tv shows and films he grew up watching as a child so it's like the fact that he stumbled upon this story that appealed to children and adults i think to your point nick we as kids were so attracted to this thing that felt adult to us. It felt like it was like an R-rated movie, but it wasn't an R-rated movie. You know what I'm saying? It was like we were all growing up watching Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers, but this was this thing that we were allowed to watch. Our parents felt okay letting us watch it. You you could comfortably sit in a room with your parents and watch Star Wars. It wasn't like sneaking to watch an R-rated movie or something. It was like right, right. you got to watch this thing. And, and so you, you were connected to all these adult characters and their struggles and their adventures. And it didn't feel like a cartoon. And I don't care what anyone says. You can't watch The Phantom Menace and not feel like you're watching a cartoon with human actors in it. Yeah. And I think that's really the difference is that this movie feels like whether he knew it or not, and I'll never know, we will never know because we're not inside his head, but whether he was catering to kids or not, it, it, yeah, he did it by accident then. If he wasn't, he accidentally catered to kids yeah. in the same way that he accidentally didn't the first time around. Yeah. And there is such awareness required. I mean, it's just like trying to write a pop song versus accidentally writing a really catchy song. Story of the Year did not know how to write until the day I die. We fucking did it by accident. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, I think George Lucas kind of wrote his hit song kind of by accident. You know what I mean? He went back. He's like, oh, I need to appeal to kids again. Not thinking about the fact that, like you said, we didn't want to see other kids. Like all the kids that we kind of idolized or that we wanted to be in movies were probably a little bit older. At least mine were like, Eddie Furlong in Terminator 2 was a few years older than me. He was riding a fucking dirt bike in a sewer. Right. Rufio and Hook was older. He was edgy. You know what I mean? I didn't want to be... Yeah, like you didn't want to be the kids in the sandlot. Right. Yeah. You <laughs> like, want to be the one that's... Like they were cool. They were like your buddies, but you didn't want to be them. Exactly. I think that's a little bit of a miss, not realizing that. I think you make an interesting point, too, that we all three would relate to being in bands for our whole life, or our adult life anyways, our professional career, is that you do... All of us go through this. You do. You just do. Some bands get really lucky, and even when they go through this, they still nail it. And how, I don't know. And I'm doing like the 
on my knees, you know, arms worshiping sign right now to you all, but <laughs> you chase, you chase after until the day I die after ocean Avenue, you, you chase trying to recreate that. And sometimes you knock it out of the park and sometimes it looks and feels like you're chasing it. And it's unfortunate, but it's reality. And I think that you have to give Lucas that leeway that yeah. it's natural. It's a natural thing that he was trying to chase the success of the first films. And he wanted it to be so massive and on, on such a grand scale to outdo what he had done the first time. That's a natural feeling. I, I'm not mad at him for that. There is another thing that is really huge, actually. And I think a lot of people don't realize this because a lot of people will say, Lucas just, because of all the changes he made to the trilogy after the fact, all the special editions and everything, like he wants it, what he wants. He doesn't care about fans, this or that. He thinks that he has all the answers. I don't think he necessarily thinks he has all the answers. I mean, he did offer this film to a bunch of directors. He offered it to Spielberg and everyone said to him, no, this is your film. You should be the one to direct it. Unreal. They just shut him down. Like Spielberg would have been perfect, especially at this point. He was still in his prime. That dude knows how to direct kids. You look at E.T., like, dude. What if we had a Spielberg-directed Star Wars trilogy? What if? Man. I mean, like, how is that even fathomable? I can't even imagine. He wanted him to do, I think, Jedi or Empire as well back in the day, but his schedule was just popping the fuck off because he was doing what he was doing right. then. Yeah. So maybe we'll still get Spielberg. Or maybe he's too old now. Who knows? Also, those kids in E.T., actually, that was a great little ensemble, a great little crew that had amazing chemistry. Mm-hmm. which, again, reminds me of A New Hope and the chemistry there. Take this bizarre script, because A New Hope was a fucking weird movie. When you really go back and look at it, like, the first, I don't know, 20 minutes, you don't even meet the protagonist until after 20 minutes of this weird shit with these snarky robots, and you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So it's a weird movie, but there's no denying the chemistry between Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, and Mark Hamill, and that, like you said earlier, just carried that through everything so without that you put a nine-year-old with a 14-year-old and then a couple of older guys different kind of roles in the way they interact with each other it's gonna be a lot different in a giant blue room where they have to pretend that there are droids and spaceships i mean it's it's a lot to handle and this is before actors expected that and knew how to deal with that stuff this was like early days of going into a big green screen room and i don't think the directorial focus was on that chemistry I think he was always one step out of the room into what was going on that blue screen. And I will reference it again. I didn't know that I, that I thought that until I watched this documentary. You can see it on his face that at all times he was considering the post-production and the, and the CGI and CGI versus practical. Those types of decisions were on his mind at all times because of the scope of this film compared to the scope of the first three films. And I think you put those actors in the room and the last thing, unfortunately, again, I'm not in his head. I don't know. I, maybe this is mean to say, but I just, I think the, the chemistry that made the original trilogy so special was the last thing on his mind. You can't deny it when you watch the film. It's just missing. There's also a lot to be said, despite Lucas being the creator of this universe, the world building going back to the very beginning is just like incredible. I was thinking today, I was watching Harry Potter with my wife, thinking about what I would want to write as a creative person. I have some ideas floating around as well. Ryan and I have talked about one in the Star Wars universe. And I think about the kind of movies I would want to make if I got that opportunity. Yeah, I'd like to make cool dramas and shit, but ultimately I would want to make some kind of sci-fi-ish thing. But there's nothing as fucking cool as 
Jedi and Sith and the Force. Like, I don't think I would ever try because nothing is that fucking cool. And this dude just made all this shit up. Yeah, he pulled from stuff in the real world, but he made it all up. So that's incredible. But also all of that got run through the filter of a studio that was or wasn't going to greenlight certain ideas, a producer that was or wasn't going to let him make XYZ mistake, and on to the episode five and six, co-writers, other directors. So it is, again, kind of like the band analogy. You take some young people that have some fucking wild ideas. Some of them are great. Some of them are garbage. But when it gets filtered through a producer, you get these hits that maybe the band couldn't have written on their own. Maybe the artist couldn't have pulled off on their own. Like, I, I know my band was in that place. I would never want to make an album without a producer to be that, like, objective filter to be like, this is not the idea. <laughs> you know, here's the idea over here. You guys are better at this. You know what I mean? Our first record had the bridge after the second verse on every song. Like, why? Why, why did we do that? And there was only two choruses. That's our, our first record is the same thing. We're like, what? what? But also, Dick, like, t- people will tell you, like, that's fine. You be creative. Do what you want. It's like, no. I hear you. Like, that's great. There's, there doesn't need to be a formula except that every earth shattering, life changing song of all time goes verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. Sorry. It's just a fact. Mm -hmm. It's the way it goes. Right. Or at the very least it goes verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge out. Like doesn't change, you know, like Mm -hmm. the point being that I had no concept of that as a songwriter until I had a producer. I'm, I'm fully agreeing with your point that someone coming in with a fresh perspective to filter the ideas is very necessary in these fields. It just is. Especially when you're dealing with a $50 million movie. I mean, it's just too, it's too much. Look, do we not all worship the ground George Lucas walks on? Of course we do. But like, it's just, that's too much for one mind to handle, no matter how you cut it, you know? Yeah. I mean, you need to be a little, a little bit nuts and have good luck. And then this filter needs to happen too, from somewhere else, you, you know? And nuts. I feel like <laughs> clearly he's nuts. Clearly he had luck at the beginning and then the filter almost was like lacking on mm-hmm. this trilogy, I feel like. Mm-hmm. I feel like it was not, it's not, I see it in that making of, but it's not very apparent that there's just yes men around. But I kind of kind of get the feeling that maybe either there's a combination of yes men around, but also just like trust. Why wouldn't you trust George Lucas yeah, at that point? Dude, it's, yeah. it's like the perfect storm of that. And I think that it was just hundreds of yes men because like you said, it's George Lucas. Like even Spielberg was like, mm-hmm. no, no, man, this is your shit. You should do it. Fucking Spielberg. Yeah. I don't want to direct Star Wars. Right. You mentioned that the first AD, you could tell that dude was just shaking in his boots there in a meeting with Mm -hmm. George Lucas, that he was actually Mm -hmm. going to be the first assistant director on a Star Wars film. So I don't think that's the right dynamic. And to Lucas's credit, he tried to pull in as many creative people as possible and offer jobs to people and all the concept art and everything. But ultimately, it was, sir, yes, sir. No, it... Do you approve, sir? Oh, I'm so sorry. A thousand apologies, sir. Like that. (laughs) Yeah. That was like their mentality, even though... I doubt that he's the kind of dude that wants that. It just But think about how much that must have trickled down to beyond just the the production crew, the people around him making creative decisions, but the actors yeah, themselves. Yeah. Because when you watch the film, I think it's safe to say like really the only person in the film that nails it is Ian McDermott. Like that's he he just crushes yeah. the role. He yeah. you know he is the emperor in the hood and he kills it as like when I watch him, he's the part of the whole Senate and the Republic and all that, that I'm interested in. And I believe what he's talking about. And I believe there is weight to his decisions. And I believe their stakes are high for him. He's a classically trained theater actor who had already been in star Wars films. So he didn't walk on this set with that gravity of like, holy shit. 
I'm in Star Wars. Right. And every other person did. Every yeah. The rest of them came into this for the Aside first from time. Anthony Daniels and yeah. Right. But they, they all came into this for the first time in, you know, 15 years going, whoa, I'm in a Star Like the three of us, let's sit here for a second and consider that you get the phone call that you're going to be a lead actor in a Star Wars film. You're not going to be okay with that. You're not going to deal with that well. You're not going to walk in there with swagging like, yeah, I'm good. I got this. Right. That plays into the yes men thing where it's just like you're you're so overwhelmed by the presence of this man that you end up not delivering because you're just too nervous to to make any decisions, you know? And I, I'm sure that he feels that. And as you just said, I don't think he's someone who wants that. I'm sure it bums him out in a position of leadership to feel like everyone around you is like scared to be around you. It's right. not the kind of business that you want this like power trip in because you want to be creative and you want to you want to like encourage people to be creative and have fun. And, you know, so I don't know. It's just the scale and scope of Star Wars had to have played a role in the lack of delivery in some of this stuff. Perfect storm of doo-doo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck. All right. You said in deep doo-doo this time, George. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's move on from this extended, from a certain point of view segment, and get into the den of antiquities. Yeah, there's some cool stuff. Easter eggs, obscure facts some half-assed internet research. We'll expand this a little bit less about just like straight-up Easter eggs. There's just lots of cool stuff in these films, so this is the spot to talk about them. We're going to try to have some kind of little intro. Um, if you listeners have any cool quotes or anything that we could throw into this intro to make it hit us up. It turns out that there were actually a lot more practical effects in this movie than you would expect. Everyone talks about how it's just all CG. It had a lot of CG, let's be honest. But they built out a ton of practical sets, huge fucking sets. The Jedi Council, you know, aside from the stuff in the windows, that was a room that was built. All those seats were real. Those were people in them with practical makeup on. Even the Nemodians at the beginning, those are practical costumes with really advanced animatronic faces, all kinds of articulation in the lips and shit, like a handful of people operating those faces. They did a lot of amazing stuff. There's this great video, can't remember who did it, they break down all the practical effects in, in the entire prequel trilogy. And then there's also one done by Corridor Crew talking about the visual effects in general. They talk about some CG, but they also mention that some of the most convincing stuff that you would think was CG was actually practical. Like the waterfalls on Naboo, that's salt. There's like this old trick. You pour salt, you shoot it from a distance. It looks like water. It has that same kind of like motion blur to it. So there's a lot of really cool stuff like that. We'll put the links in the show notes. A lot of that stuff is displayed and explained in a really cool way. And also in the show notes, the beginning, the documentary we keep referencing as far as the making of, they they show how so much of this stuff was made. And um, it brings you back into that Star Wars space of like, wow, George Lucas just creates planets and universes and galaxies. And it's just crazy. I love watching you and McGregor pick his lightsaber. Yeah, That's a cool yeah. super cool scene. In the most 90s looking hoodie. He looks like he just came straight from Kona Skate Park in Jacksonville, Florida. <laughs> like he just came out of the concrete bowl, took his helmet off, threw his triple XL hoodie on. They didn't show his jeans, but I bet they were Jinkos, and yeah. I bet he had on shell-toed Adidas. I bet he did. <laughs> if he was standing in place, you couldn't see the toes of his shoes. <laughs> I was going to say maybe Airwalks at that point, too. <laughs> maybe, maybe Airwalks. Depends on what band he's into. One thing I thought was cool about the uh, CGI versus practical effect is that they did film 
Jar Jar in his full like actual costume yeah. and did try to only CG basically from like the chest up or just his head, but they saved money by making him fully digital. So I think that the decision to go practical versus CGI or CGI versus practical, actually, that might have been budgetary at that point because it was less man hours to do it all CGI. Kind of an interesting take on on why they went full CGI versus the practical effect of having them just be in a costume. I would bet that it came down to just being easier to make the whole character than to match the real world and the character, which is something they still run into. Like with Solo, yeah, L3 they had that amazing costume and it ultimately ended up just being lighting reference for the digital model that replaced her because yeah. it's much harder to match than it is to make the whole thing. Phantom Menace was, and Jar Jar Binks was one of the first examples of that. They talk about that, how the suit ended up accidentally being a lighting reference. How they yeah. said, well, we can follow the way the character is developing, you know, the body actor is developing all these cool movements and gestures and mannerisms and we're able to not only reference those as we track and create the cgi character but also we could literally see how the light and the shadow is hitting the body and just that way we're not guessing and going oh well the light's coming from the left or outside the window we can just see it in the real footage yeah pretty cool how that probably was something that has developed into film later on where they may even you know certain directors may be like let's do it also with a body double or body actor or an actor so that we can have reference you know on the practical side Adam Savage of the Mythbusters was on the build team. I think he was doing a lot of miniatures, I want to say, at the time. You know, that was his his first big gig in visual effects before he went on to the Mythbusters. And he's got some great stories. Uh, one cool thing that I think in the back of my head I remember, because Pete Serafin, it's, he's kind of an actor-comedian guy, but he actually voiced Maul while Ray Park was the actual actor in the movie. Uh, totally, totally forgot that someone else voiced. I mean, Same. Maul doesn't have very many lines, so it totally slipped my mind that someone else voiced the very few lines that Maul had in, in Phantom Menace. One cool thing that just recently happened, so the newest season of Clone Wars, the final season, is out right now. Um, and the last arc has to do with Mandalore and Maul. And they actually brought back Ray Park to do motion capture for the animated Clone Wars, which I think is very cool. I, I don't think that they've ever done that before. And I love that. Sam Witwer, who does the current voice of Darth Maul, both in Solo and then Clone Wars and Rebels, he tweeted, and again to paraphrase, something was missing in Clone Wars and Rebels, and that thing was Ray Park. That person was Ray Park. So at the very end, to kind of close out Maul's story arc in Clone Wars, they brought in Ray Park and really got his physicality, which is a big part. I mean, Ray Park got that role because of his physicality and his overall skills. The circle is now complete. <laughs> the E.T. species is in the Senate crossover there's a youtube video there's probably more than one but there's one that's kind of the one that goes around about et being a jedi yeah it's like well now that's not even the is it debatable anymore like he lifts up <laughs> the the planets and spins them around for the kids and he can heal things with his touch i mean he's he's a jedi there's no doubt i mean i love that i think it's debatable whether it should have been in the film or not but i still love it <laughs> you know what i mean dude I mean, like, if they're in the Senate, they're in that galaxy. So that's what I'm saying. exist. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it all makes sense. Dude, if you're going to cross over to any other director's film universes, one of Spielberg's is cool by me. Yeah. At the very end of the credits, there's a slowed down version of the Imperial March melody with a single Vader breath. I don't think I've ever heard this. Who put this in the notes? 
Yeah, I did. It's wild because it's it's not very well known because who in 1999 was sticking around for like a post credit scene? Nobody. Right. Yeah. Stingers weren't a thing it's yet. Really all the way at the end. Yeah. So it's just kind of the very basic slowed down melody with just one like Vader XL. Just picture this, 1999, someone sitting in the theater picking the movie apart like what the fuck did i just watch and then, <laughs> and then the credits end in that little imperial march and vader's breath that's really the only way you'd be able to know is if you for some reason you were sitting in the theater in 1999 until right. the complete end of the credits oh dude i missed this should have said this earlier the other directors that were offered the director spot spielberg ron howard and robert zemeckis Zemeckis would have been fucking awesome. He, of course, wow. Back any, to the future. Any of that would have been, man. That's just that's wild yeah. to think about the trajectory these films would have gone on. But I don't know. Think about it though. Kirshner was the one that said, "No, Han Solo wouldn't say I love you too. He'd say I know." You know what I'm saying? That's true. Zemeckis is one of my favorites. Still, that would have been fucking awesome. One little funny Easter egg: Qui Gon Jinn's communicator, the little Jedi communicator. It's a women's Gillette razor <laughs> from the 90s. My mom had these. I remember seeing it on screen in the theater going, that's a fucking razor. That shit's in my bathroom. It's a little like um, flat. It looks like a tongue almost. That's a good way to describe it. It's real 90s. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. It's just, it's like 90s innovation. Like, look at this thing that looks like it's from 2059 in our minds <laughs> in a sci-fi movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that you can just buy at Walgreens. We made it. I'm really, I, I wish Disney, I wish Galaxy's Edge was open right now because I think there's a Jedi set of like little things. And I wonder if this is in it. Oh, dude, it is. I saw right? it. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. now you could just buy the third rate Gillette Razor that's yeah. a Jedi communicator at Disney for. Really? I'm almost I, positive I saw it's it. It's got to be in there. I could be, it could be a false memory, yeah. but. I'm looking at the photo and I just feel, I, I don't know how I feel about the fact that it's like they just didn't even try to hide it. It's just like yeah. they glued some model parts to a women's shaver and called it a communicator. Like, <laughs> You want to talk about the real one, the theory? Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So I think that this could be its own episode, like its own podcast and maybe should be because we could really take it apart and talk about it. So give us the quick and dirty, the TLDR. So we should just put this in the show notes so that if you haven't seen it, you can go watch it. But this is a video that has circulated for many years. It basically presents the theory that as much as we all tend to take issue with the character, the voice, the goofy of Jar Jar Binks, that Jar Jar Binks was the Phantom Menace. There's a theory that if you pick apart his role in the films, and most notably in The Phantom Menace, there are things that happen and things that transpire and like movements he makes and little things he does like Easter eggs that he does throughout the film. Basically all signs point to, he was a Sith Lord or a Sith apprentice or a Sith something in play all along. And because of the backlash to the film and Jar Jar Binks's character and voice and goofy and all those things, basically Lucas did a 180 and invented Dooku instead. I haven't watched the video in a long time, so I may be like misquoting a little bit of that, but I, I'm pretty sure that's the gist of it. And like when you watch it, it's it's one of those things, one of those conspiracy theories that you're like, I don't want to believe this, but fuck, man. It's like it's so convincing 
they talk about in the video, the scene where he's like, um, and you watch it and it's there. It's clearly there. He's like tampering with the hyperdrive on Padme's ship and stuff like that. And it's like, why was he doing that? Yeah. So there are all these just little moments with Jar Jar that you watch this dude take apart and try to analyze and basically suggest Jar Jar was supposed to be a much larger influence on the story. And he also references in the original special features, what would have come with the Blu-ray disc or the DVD back in the day when they released them. There's definitely a scene he takes from that where Lucas is like looking at storyboards and you just hear it's undeniably George Lucas's voice. And he says the quote, Jar Jar is the key to all of this. Yeah. Yeah. And when you watch the film, you're like, well, there's no scene in the movie that could have related to that quote at all. Like, well, Jar Jar doesn't, I mean, a couple things. One, the idea is that Jar Jar has this like drunken master Kung Fu style thing to sort of distract the enemy. So all this buffoonery He's like Yoda. He's distracting from what, what's actually going on. Yeah, they, they talk about that in the video, comparing it to Yoda in Empire when he first comes out and he's just goofy little alien Yoda guy. Which ultimately puts him even less on the radar for anything legit. So strategy, if that's really the case, that's pretty sick. The other thing is it may not be that, that Lucas backed out because he was sort of responding to the reception of Jar Jar. It's more that kids did like Jar Jar, so he didn't want to flip it on them and be like, oh, this goofy cartoon that you like is actually an evil villain. But I think, if anything, that would have scored him more points. That would have been a pretty sweet long con to pull on people. Yeah, I think even kids would have respected that and liked that. Yeah. In the way we talked about already, the stuff about the original trilogy that was way above our heads as kids, but we still loved it for just, we sensed it was awesome, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I don't know if I buy that one because it's like we start the trilogy with a nine-year-old kid who is are you an angel? <laughs> you know, and then we end with him being scorched in lava with his legs cut off. After he chopped up a bunch of children. Murdered a bunch of children, all but dropping F-bombs. You know, it's like, how does that not scar children just as much? Like, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. It's an interesting theory. And if you're listening and you haven't seen it, check out the video. It's a cool watch either way. It's a very excellent uh, case for... When you watch a documentary and they have uh, something they want you to think, yes, <laughs> this video wants you to think that it's possible that Jar Jar is a Sith Lord and gives you all the facts you need based on editing and, and things like that. Carol Baskin <laughs> definitely fed her husband to the Tigers. <laughs> I still haven't watched that, and I don't think it's worth it at this point. I don't know if I'm going to go down that road at all. I am definitely not. One thing that I did watch was uh, the extended edition of all the Lord of the Rings over the past three nights. And I made a parallel and got like a confirmation from my girlfriend, who's a big Lord of the Rings fan. I made a parallel between the Tooks, Merry and Pippin, kind of having like a Jar Jar vibe to them, mm -hmm. where they kind of just stumble through things and are kind of just goofy little bastards running around, but they get stuff done too. You know, that scene where like Jar Jar's just like has something stuck to his foot and somehow winds up blowing up, you know? Yeah. It's like there's right. there's a lot of things like that with Merry and Pippin and Lord of the Rings. I don't know about the books, but at least in the movies where they kind of just get things done by being a little goofy. All right, let's move on. Let's focus on the things that we really love. I love you. I know. There is a lot of world-building stuff, a lot of costume design, creature design, weapons, vehicle design, things like that, that I like quite a bit. Some of the style I'm not so into, but I, I, I definitely get where they were coming from in terms of like the arrows of the style. But I love all of the different royal dresses, all the 
Amidala costume design. I think it's fucking beautiful, amazing, really high level craft. Agreed. I think Darth Maul's character design is badass in general. That species, the double-bladed lightsaber, the fucking face tattoos, all of it is super badass. Yeah. You think about how Maul's whole thing has played in the canon, you know, with going as far as like Fallen Order, the video game, and Dothamir and the planet he's from and developing this, this whole story for him and his species, how he was raised and how he became Sith and what happened after. I mean, it, it all traces back to just creating this character for this movie. You know, I don't think that any of that was decided or written in before, you know, I mean, I don't think Lucas was thinking all the way out to like the planet he came from and the species he was and how he was going to play into a seven series long animated series, you know? Right. Yeah. I think costume design was hit or miss, but when it hit, it hit hard in this film. Yeah. There was a lot of costume design that was really goofy and cheesy, but I think there were also some of it that plays into what we talked about. Some of that epic, just homage to ancient Asian culture and, you know, whether it's kind of like Kung Fu Chinese or samurai Japanese, you know, but there was just a lot of really cool costume design that I think plays into that world. And he's always, that's always played in Star Wars and he played in a big way in this film. Nick? Anything to add? I think as far as just uh, creating a new sort of foot soldier, I think that the look of the battle droids is pretty cool. I definitely appreciated them. They're a little annoying once they start being chatterboxes. I think having getting to the next movie, having, finding a need to have clone stormtroopers is cool that they had these kind of like just low level foot soldiers that were just getting mowed down by lightsabers left and right. In general, I liked the look of them. On the vehicles and spaceships level, I love that droid control ship above mm -hmm. Naboo, the sort of the donut with the floating donut hole in the middle. I just think it looks awesome. It's a really cool design. I like that a lot. It's cool, and I may be reaching, but I think it played into some like imperial design. I mean, a lot of these ships, yeah. a lot of these pre-Empire Republic era ships play into designs later on. But the one I'm thinking of is um, the shield generator on Scarif in Rogue One. It's yeah. got that same kind of circular shield generating control vibe and i think that was something that was cool about this film if, if you want to you can look at some of the ship designs you know maul's ship is very tie fighter and mm -hmm. the, those types of things that you know played into future design and i think when you're talking about ship design it's referenced in canon later on ships that were sort of in the last jedi that the ship that um finn and rose get on with dj has a very republic vibe to it yeah. there's just a lot of they do go back and reference like oh that ship is republic era or pre-empire or stuff like that and so just the idea that there was more and we've talked about this on the show there was more like extravagance and indulgence pre-empire and everything sort of had to be simplified and more streamlined during the war so the ships became less flashy you know and, and less shiny in a very like direct example in this film with Amidala's ship being literally just a chrome, like, yeah. kind of dildo thing she was flying. But, like... Uh, it, An elegant ship for a more civilized age. There you go. <laughs> That's better than dildo. Thank you. Same deal. <laughs> Lastly, on, the, on that droid control ship, they built that shit as a practical prop. Like, they did a mm -hmm. lot of ships, which is awesome. It was fucking huge, if you see in the, the behind the scenes. It's good shit. All right. Favorite scenes. I have two. It was easy for me. I got it. I'm with you. The pod race. I also love the look of the pods. The concept that they're like these like rocket chariots is fucking pretty sweet. But the pod race gripes aside with some of the tertiary characters. The Mucinex commercial guy? Yeah. I think like, one of them. it's a great visual effects scene. Like that shit holds up. 
the motion blur under of the ground. That's all CG shit. And they just, they fucking nailed it. If you go back and watch, it's great. If you watch the behind the scenes, you really do realize how it feels like three quarters of the focus of the production of this film went into the pod race itself. Yeah. So that's probably why it looks so awesome and why the CG is so mind bending for the time. Yeah. Dude, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't learn this until this year. This is kind of an Easter egg. I guess it was for me. That's Beggar's Canyon. Oh. You just dropped that knowledge on me. You just dropped it on me. Because it is like, what is it called? The race itself is the, the Boom to Eve classic or something yeah. like that. So I always kind of just yeah, yeah. think of that as the pod race. But that makes sense, though. I mean, they are they, a lot of the race takes place in the canyon, and, and he would have thrown like a little little cool Easter egg like that in for sure. Yeah. That's sick. Yeah. I think I agree with you. The design and, and the kind of like dirty griminess of them is very classic Star Wars. It's cool. Yeah. The ships themselves and the actual sequence, like the action sequence of the pod race was one of the highlights of the film and holds up and is sick. Kind of a little uh, Jabba cameo right at the beginning there, too, which I totally forgot. Oh, yeah. About. Young Jabba, he's still yeah. got like some blue in his skin or whatever. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. I actually, I actually back that. I mean, it makes sense that he would be there. He'd be like the dude that's like, "Yo, what's up? This is my shit. I just put this on. You, you owe me money. <laughs> you down there, you owe me fucking." Yeah, he runs money. the tracks <laughs> for sure. And I, I know there's a female Jabba there too. I don't know the relation though. Wife, one of his hut ladies, friends. Yeah, I have no idea. How does that work? You think? But let's moving on. <laughs> moving on. They're all virgin births. <laughs> <laughs> That's maybe the best joke so far this podcast. Um, <laughs> keeping it light. Keeping it light. <laughs> the other favorite scene, the obvious one, Duel of the Fates, as it's known. The final battle between Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon Jinn, and Darth Maul. Brilliantly choreographed, next level fight. Again, Ray Park being like the martial arts expert that he is really took that up. It's just so good. It's the first time we've seen something like that. Yeah. We talked about this a few, few days ago. I don't, we were texting about how like this was we just hadn't seen this like you'd heard about these jedi battles you'd heard about their skills you'd heard about what they can do and they have this mythology of being wildly powerful but we hadn't really seen a lightsaber battle on this level i mean the choreography is insane yeah at its like lowest level in high school when you're learning like stage combat like i'm gonna do a shakespeare play and there's a sword fight you know, you learn like the positions that there's you know one through eight or whatever the numbers are and so a, a sword fight at a very low level like that for high school kids is choreographed by like you memorize the numbers, you know, we're going on defense, you're one, seven, four, three, you just learn the numbers and the offense learns the other. And you, so this is like, what, <laughs> like, where's the numbers there? You know what I mean? You watch, yeah. Like this behind the scenes shit when they're learning it is wild. It's wild, dude. And watching, you know, you and McGregor, who, as we talked about, just had, as far as we know, kind of done train spotting and maybe some, a couple other things. And then he just shows up and is this like, sword wielding badass in the behind the scenes yeah. shit it's it's crazy yeah dude and you could we credit so much to ray park but you see right off the bat the ease with which they wield those lightsabers that first fight with the battle droids the last battle droid that he takes out before they kind of take the bridge i guess mm-hmm. he deflects a blaster bolt back at the droid and he swings with this amazing like elegant martial artist swing of a bat to like hit it back and it's effortless and it looks so good i remember at that moment just being like damn i'm on board these guys are over here are weird but this is fucking sick yeah the lightsaber stuff is really mind-blowing in this film it, re- it is and there's no denying it they spent a lot of time choreographing this stuff and the dude spent a lot of time training and they're like sword fighting skills yeah. it's wild and and also what's cool i think thinking about ray park training for this 
combining the kind of bow staff skill with the sword fighting skill at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, he was kind of doing both, and it plays that way. It's cool. It doesn't look like he's fighting with a bow. It looks, you know, with a staff. It looks like he's fighting with a double-bladed sword. Yeah. And I think that's really cool. Hey, guys, I'm a fucking nerd. A <laughs> <laughs> few more favorite moments here. I mentioned that moment where Obi-Wan knocks the fucking ball out of the park with the lightsaber. That one's great. Darth Maul's double-bladed lightsaber reveal, just mm-hmm. that one shot from the trailer, looks so sweet. Yeah. The way he turns it and the one side ignites, you don't expect the other one, you know, because they go in sequence rather than at the same time. That's really well done. The composition of the shot, too, everything, that's really artfully done shit. It was a big Star Wars moment, you know, for, yeah. for fans. It was a big, like, whoa moment. So that one really stands out. So during the Duel of the Fates, when Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon are battling Maul, they're kind of moving into this larger room, whatever it is. And there's these force fields that keep coming up and kind of pausing them. And there's this great moment where they have to wait for the force field to open back up. So Qui-Gon, instead of just standing there fucking mugging him, he kneels down and meditates. Where Maul, on the other side, is pacing back and forth like a caged tiger. All fucking fury and rage waiting to pounce. And it's a really good illustration of the difference between Jedi and Sith. You know, you're seeing them being what they are at their core in like the most intense moment, which is really what it comes down to, the difference. It's a beautiful illustration of that. I think it's maybe the best moment. He was just waiting to eat Carol Baskin's husband. (laughs) (laughs) And then after Maul kills Qui-Gon, which was bold, I think, that they did that, Obi-Wan gets stopped again. He doesn't meditate, but he does like take a moment and you can kind of see like the difference between this like seasoned master Jedi and yeah, a Padawan. Exactly. He's trying to focus and like keep his shit together, but he's standing there just kind of like huffing. You know, he's he's breathing really heavily. He's almost like feeling the rage, but he's not like Maul level. Maul's like sneering at him and fucking just like still same thing pacing, like come get me motherfucker. I think it's an early show of some of the stuff that we see in both Attack of the Clones and Ridge of the Sith. That Obi-Wan does have a little bit of impatience. It's one of the things he struggles yeah. with as a character. And I think it could have played into some of the failure in training Anakin. Because he, do- he does not meditate in that scene. He is raging pissed. He- he's like standing in one place, but you can, you know, it's played well that he- he's broken and angry and things that a Jedi shouldn't do in that moment. And I think yeah. that was probably directed that way. It aligns with that exchange with Yoda when he says, was I any different? You know, when he's talking about Luke. Yeah, for sure. Great moments. I would say if I have, just to throw in a favorite scene, favorite moment, the one scene that actually holds weight for me, not counting the lightsaber battles because they are absolutely amazing. Every Star Wars fan's dream seeing that movie was those lightsaber fights. But the scene between Obi-Wan and Yoda post-funeral pyre after they've burned Qui-Gon's body, it matters, it's heavy, it's deep movement of the story, the idea of, of Yoda allowing permission to train Anakin and all, all those things. It just, yeah. that scene mattered and was believable. I think both Frank Oz and Ewan McGregor played that scene the best of anyone in any scene in that entire film. Favorite quotes, and, and this will lead to that. I actually really like the moment when they're in Anakin and Shmi's house and Anakin says, no one can kill a Jedi. No one can kill a Jedi. I wish that was so. Very sincere moment. Yeah, that's great. By Liam Neeson. Cue the memes. Another good uh, Qui-Gon one, right when they meet Jar Jar, basically. He says, the ability to speak does not make you intelligent, which... (laughs) 
Thanks. is very poignant in, in the, in the <laughs> yeah. moment, but it's also poignant in everyday life, I, I suppose. Or let's just update it. The ability to tweet does not make you intelligent. And there you go. <laughs> there it is. I actually really like uh, a line from Watto. And this is cue the fucking memes again. Actually, so so many of the best prequel quotes are memes. They're like tongue in cheek. We we like love them for uh, they're, they're sort of like accidental comedy. This one happens to be on purpose. But Qui Gon's trying to get Watto to do his bidding, and the the credits will do fine thing. And Watto what? says, "What you think you're some kind of jet? I waving your hand around like that." I actually thought that was pretty funny. And it's funny how how Liam Neeson then plays that he's not like he's like, oh yeah, okay, this dude clearly is not going to believe I'm a Jedi, which plays into the dice roll scene. Great one from C3PO. I can assure, I can assure you they'll never get me on one of those dreadful starships. Yeah. Good luck with that, buddy. Cue the Kirby enthusiasm music right there. <laughs> <laughs> Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering i sense much fear in you yoda talking to anakin in his little trial right there right that's a lot to drop on a (laughs) nine-year-old yeah i'm scared i'm nine get off me weird (laughs) puppet qui-gon to anakin before the pod race i think says remember concentrate on the moment feel don't think trust your instincts now that's just liam neeson's acting right there i like that i like how that plays into the Stuff Qui-Gon said to about Anakin to Shmi about how he can see things before they happen. Yeah. That's a big part of knowing he's got, you know, he's very force sensitive. That's kind of on the nose when they talk, I'm the only human who can do it. Right. But still, it, I think it was cool to throw that extra dialogue in and not leave it at that where Qui-Gon kind of validates it by saying like, yeah, he's he's definitely got something because he can see the turns in the pod race before the turns come up. Yeah. It also mirrors the end of A New Hope when Obi-Wan's force spirit tells Luke, use the force and he turns off his you know yeah luke just feels when to shoot another good one from qui-gon remember your focus determines your reality good little liam neeson moments classic neeson good character qui-gon's a great character who does he say that to Uh, he says that to obi-wan i think qui-gon's a great character i just think that he wasn't given time and space as an actor to really develop the character totally the expanded universe stuff on him is cool the backstory about him being kind of like a rebel almost like a gray Jedi. It was kind of mm-hmm. cool. There is a, a good Clone Wars moment also. He's the first Force spirit, basically. He's the first person to become one with, uh, I think it's the cosmic Force. He, he actually contacts Yoda. That's the first Force spirit. Cool. It's awesome. Pretty cool. I can't wait till Adam and I watch the Clone Wars all the way through so we can be on your level, but we, we will. <laughs> we'll get there. I just finished season three. Moving up. The last two quotes I love, I'll read them off just because they come from that scene that I feel like is the most validating scene in the film to me between Obi-Wan and Yoda. I mean, also imagine thinking back years ago that you're going to get a scene between young Obi-Wan and Yoda. Like that's just fucking mind blowing kind of, you know? So I I love that this scene is in the film. The approval when Yoda says your apprentice Skywalker will be. Agree with you. The council does. Your apprentice Skywalker will be. The reluctant approval. And that's just such a, defining moment the whole thing kicks off from there that's it the jedi council he was a pupil of mine before he turned to evil (laughs) (laughs) the jedi council has approved the skywalker saga beginning you know it's like it's just crazy (laughs) they greenlit the project i love that whole interaction between the two of them it's a simple quote but it might be my favorite quote from the film in the final sequence the award ceremony 
Anakin and Palpatine are basically walking together, which is crazy. And I love the idea now, Nick, that you brought in this in the Vader comics. There's like the idea that Palpatine made Anakin like yeah. through one of his crazy super Sith abilities. The greatest Sith Lord of all time was able <laughs> to do that. That would make this quote even cooler. But he's walking with, you know, little nine year old Anakin and says, and you, young Skywalker. We will watch your career with great interest. With great interest? <laughs> I'm so excited about this. Yeah. We're going to kill people together. Yeah, it's just like, oh, man, yes, yes, you will. Like, he is so patient. Yeah. Palpatine is the most patient person of all time. Yeah, you're talking about, <laughs> like, 60 years of shit. I mean, just, like, yeah. more than the second half of a human's lifetime he waits <laughs> yeah. for all this shit to pan out. I remember actually being really stoked when I heard that line. I was like, oh, shit, yeah. Okay, here we go. Mm-hmm. Let's pick winners. Let's hand out the medals. I think it's pretty undeniable what the winners are. We only have a few. My favorite scene, Duel of the Fates. If you can call that all one scene, that battle, that's mine. It's I've really hard for me to not say that as well, to agree with that. It's, it's the most glorious Star Wars moment in this film, so it's it's really hard. But I also have always been very drawn to those kind of expositional moments of focus with Yoda in all the films. So the scene between Obi-Wan and Yoda is a close second for me, even though it's kind of just a quick little moment at the end. I just think that the weight that it holds shines in the film. It mattered to me, you know, Nick. Yeah. I mean that, that ending lightsaber scene is besides choreography there were two shocking moments because at that point, no one knew that Qui-Gon was going to die or even more shockingly, because I don't know, Obi-Wan watching Qui-Gon die mirrors Luke watching Obi-Wan die. So that makes sense. But Darth Maul piecing out was a huge shock because mm-hmm. so much of the marketing was about him and he's the new big bad guy and he's just cut in half and presumed dead after that. So definitely the scene is the high point. But think about the music, too. That's, I mean, Duel Dude. of Fate's. Right. The music is... is it's like top three. Yeah, I mean, really. Of all the Star Wars music. Truly. And just think about how much... We'll talk about this as long as we have a podcast. John Williams is, is just as important as George Lucas at this point, I feel like. But like, think about that scene, how much it's multiplied because of the music. The music is just couldn't be more epic and more perfect to just make that scene exponentially better than it already is. So Ooh, just thinking about it, it's great. Favorite quotes. I'm going to go with Yoda's quote, fears the path to the dark side and so on. I'm going to go with, again, super simple. Your apprentice Skywalker will be. The inciting incident, as they say, of that, that acceptance of, okay, we're going to let you do this. It's just such an intense thing. Agreed. How about the first thing we hear a Jedi say in this movie is, I've got a bad feeling about this, and that's Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah. (laughs) Well played. (laughs) That is good. That's really good. All right. Like we said, we're skipping Disturbances in the Force as a segment. We'll do Tashi Station on the next one. This has been a long one. So let's close with another little bright moment that came out of Natalie Portman's mouth in real life, the quote of the week. Awards are so unnecessary because I think we get so much out of our work just by doing it. The work is a reward in itself. Thanks, Nat Dog. I think that's relevant to Star Wars. We've talked about this a few times 
how Star Wars films get nominated and never win. And it's an interesting world they live in where it's probably understandable. Just that's the way awards work. Yeah. So I think I think that quote is super relevant to the Star Wars film universe. It's the smartest thing that anyone from Long Island's ever said. <laughs> well, I don't know, man. You're a podcast host now, so you might take the crown. Yeah. <laughs> that's my one goal. Pressure's on, dog. Like, why? Why are you a podcast host? I just wanna. I want to be the smartest person from Long Island. I don't know any other way to do it. Goals. All right. Let's uh, let's wrap this shit up. Where can we find you, dudes, on social media? On all social media, you can find me at Nick Bayside. And then also, if you want to get extra nerdy about Star Wars stuff, you could follow Batu Crew. You can find me everywhere at Adam the Skull. Real quick before I say mine, I just want to one more time say how stoked we are to have Nick as part of the crew full time. This was awesome and it's going to be killer, man. This was an idea we had many, many moons ago and you're here and you're part of it and it's fucking awesome. I'm very stoked. Very, very happy to be here. Oh, yeah. Cool. You can find me everywhere on social media at William Ryan Key. But more importantly, you can find the podcast at these following locations. If you want to follow us on Instagram, it's Thank the Maker Pod. On Twitter, it's Thank the Maker One, just the number one. And then also, if you want to get on board and support the podcast so we can keep this thing going and be a part of submitting questions you may have for us that are not even Star Wars related, we're happy to answer them here at the end of the show. Like anything you want to ask about bands and music and life on the road together and whatever it may be. But we want to get ideas for segments and ideas for lightning rounds when we have guests and things like that. So anyways, you can support the podcast at patreon.com forward slash thank the maker pod. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. We have another one quarter portion or something else. We'll see what happens. And then, of course, we're on to episode two with another special guest. I think we're going to have Ashi from Beartooth, bass player Beartooth. You're getting fucking overrun by bass players, dog. <laughs> Look out, Ryan Key. <laughs> and until next time, may the force be with you. Drink till I'm